as I was on my way here tonight, I saw hundreds of those little goblins that parade around on the streets each night this time of year. And they were carrying their lights, much as we have these lights here in the hall tonight, to ward off the traditional evil spirits which make their visit this night each time of year, or each year. In some ways, these lights in the hall are a protection for us, keeping the darkness away. And the practices that we do here are also a protection for us to keep the darkness at bay. There's an old cartoon of an old Zen master sitting at the head of a room full of new Zennies. And he is saying, the path to enlightenment is long and arduous, which is why I asked you to bring a bag lunch and a change of clothes. We need more than a bag lunch and a change of clothes. They help, but they're not enough. Some of you will be leaving this place soon. And the rest of us will be staying here for another six weeks with a new influx of uh, fresh uh, sitters. And it's a time of transition and a time of change. And it's important to understand how to navigate transitions. The form of this retreat, the format of the retreat, is just that. It's a format. It's not the goal. And there are many things that we do here to support the cultivation of mindfulness, the sitting and the walking, of course, the bowing, the chanting, the metta practice, the karuna practice, and all of the other things and techniques that we use. Tonight I want to offer four um, permissions to think, if you like, Uh, They're skillful reflections which support the life of awareness and awakening. And in spite of our best efforts, we often somehow come to believe that thinking is the enemy of mindfulness. And it's not but it's skillful thought which can support mindfulness. So the practices I'm going to offer tonight are processes of thinking, skillful use of thought to support 
those who continue here in their practice, and also very useful for those of you who will be leaving and going home or going into the world under changed conditions. Traditionally, they're called the four protective reflections and especially needed tonight. They address specific difficulties that we meet in our practice. And these reflections are Buddhanusati, or reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha, Metta Bhavana, which is, of course, the development of loving kindness, Asuba Bhavana, which is the reflection on the unbeautiful aspects of the body, and Marana Sati, or the contemplation of death. Most of us have heard the story of the ascetic Sumedha, who lived during the time of Dipankara Buddha, multiple world cycles ago, who when he saw the Buddha of his day, Dipankara Buddha, and saw the radiance, the purity of this being, made a vow to himself, a silent determination in his mind that one day he too wanted to become a Buddha so that he too could help beings with their suffering. And as it happened, Dipankara Buddha recognized that pure intention and determination in the ascetic Sumedha and confirmed to him that indeed, after innumerable further existences, he would indeed become a Buddha. And after lifetime upon lifetime of practice, hundreds of lifetimes of practice, this being or this stream of being that was originally the ascetic Sumedha was born as Siddhartha, who became Gautama Buddha 2,500 years ago. Due to the power and the purity of that intention, that resolution, that determination, in the ascetic's mind, incalculable lifetimes ago, Due to that, we are here today, in part. That's one of the causal conditions of our being here. You can imagine the power and the purity of that mind that made that determination. From the time of the determination, till the time of his awakening as the Gautama Buddha, that being perfected what are known as the paramis, the qualities of mind or heart 
that a Buddha possesses. Generosity, morality, concentration, renunciation, wisdom, metta, equanimity, and others. Most of them we're familiar with. We're, we're cultivating them here. We're developing them here. We, we see those times in our practice when we really have them and feel them and are carried along with them. And we also notice those times when they're not so strong, frankly. One of the lesser known or lesser talked about paramis that I want to speak about tonight is this power of resolution, this power of determination, this steadfastness of heart, of mind, that the ascetic Sumedha had and maintained for lifetimes. We've all been through lifetimes just today, trying to get from breakfast to Dharma talk. And we see how often we are asked to recommit to our practice, even in a day. And that's really the practice of resolution, of determination. When we face the difficulties, the dukkha, or transitions, or the the habits of our mind, and we get frustrated, we get disappointed, we judge ourselves, we are asked again to make that commitment, to make that, to recommit to what we have chosen to do. But what is our goal here? Have we made a determination to become a Buddha? Or is our goal somewhat more present, but no less noble, maybe to be present, to be mindful? When we see, or when we hear of someone who has done some Dharma practice for 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years, who's had a commitment, a strong commitment to practice for 30 years and has acted on it annually or daily. Sometimes it's easy to imagine that that 20 or 30 years was the goal. But that's unlikely. Most of us have no idea what's going to be involved when we begin our practice but rather our determination or our commitment or our thought was just to to practice, to be mindful or to awaken or to get to know ourselves a little better. But even that requires innumerable moments of recommitment. 
every change of the mind or every change of conditions in our life, we have to re-establish, ask ourselves again, okay, in these changed conditions, changed jobs, changed relationship, aging of the body, whatever it is, with these changed conditions, what is my primary goal? Where, where is it I'm, I'm, I'm moving in my life? Which direction do I want to be going? The mind's tendency, as we know, is to wander and to waver and to skip lightly over things, sampling what's available. But a commitment emerges after the sampling, after we've tasted everything on the smoggish board, it's time for a decision, a resolution, a determination to choose our practice, to choose the direction that our practice will hopefully take us. And in that, our commitment isn't just a one-time, a one-shot thing. I made my commitment 20 years ago. I've been living off of it ever since. It doesn't work that way. A commitment is a living thing, a living process which needs attention, <coughs> which needs energy, which needs its um, food daily. We need to feed our commitment, feed our understanding. It requires care and a lot of accommodation, accommodating a tremendous amount of changes. But always founded on respect for ourselves and others. It's really a redeciding or a reaffirming, reconfirming the values that we have seen to be worthwhile of our effort. In that calling forth of a redecision, a recommitment, we can see that this determination, this resolution, steady resolution of the mind, is a practice. We practice being resolute in our direction. And sometimes our practice is uh, developing, sometimes it's stagnating, and sometimes we're backsliding. And that's the way it is with all practices. Sometimes our determination and resolution is not very noble, frankly. But that's the nature of practice. And rather than take it as an indication of defeat or inability, it's in that moment that we are called again to recognize what's of value. Which direction am I moving in this life? And to practice again affirming those values we have seen to be conducive to freedom from suffering. I'm sure the ascetic Sumedha in that lifetime and in every lifetime afterwards, had ample opportunity 
to turn away, to choose a different path, momentarily or for longer or shorter periods of time. But somehow, he kept coming back, kept redirecting his energies towards the goal he had originally chosen. This summer we had a month-long retreat on Maui, and it's a small place where they can hold about 30 retreatants, and it's close. And midway through the retreat, one of the men working in the kitchen re-awoke to his commitment being there was to really work with mindfulness and to really work with silence in looking deeply within. And so he asked the cook if, while they were doing their yogi jobs, if they could be quieter, if they could just talk less, if the instructions for uh, the, the food preparation could be simpler or written so that he could really keep the agitation out of his mind. And the cook realized his interest in being there was also to be more aware and uh, encouraged everyone that was working in the kitchen then to, to recommit to using silence as a practice supporting awareness. And all it took was a little awakening and everyone agreed that that's what they were there for and that's what they wanted to do. And it was a real example of how commitment, resolution, is contagious. If you are gently resolute, not grim, not struggling, not wrestling with yourself, but just quietly and firmly and clearly resolute in your practice, it will affect everyone around you. But so too, if one is unclear, irresolute, wavering in their commitment, that too has an effect on everyone around you. When I was practicing in Burma, I went to the meditation center and I met Upandita again. And he was the teacher that was primarily guiding the Western students. And so after the first four or five months I was working with him, or during that time I was working with him, seeing him every day. And then the day came when he was to leave Burma and to go traveling, probably coming back to the States, I don't remember. But I, in my daily contact with him, had grown attached to my contact with him. And on the day he left, as a, just as a casual instruction, he said, oh, by the way, you can now report to this other Sayadaw, Sayadaw Ulakana, 
and I said, um, I was going to take a break. I mean, I thought I was going to take a break until he got back from his trip. And uh, I, I, you know, hadn't really given it much thought. Or maybe I had given it a lot of thought. <laughs> but so the next day I went to um, this uh, other Sayadaw that I didn't know at the time. I just went to him and I gave him my standard report that I'd been, you know, standard report with a slight adjustment. Um, gave him my standard report and uh, he was so disinterested in everything I had to say that he put me back on day one's instruction. Um, <clears throat> pay attention to the rising and falling of the abdomen and uh, how you note it. And I thought, wait a minute, you don't understand where my practice is now. I've been here for five months, you know, it's really good, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And he just, yep, use the breath more. And that was it. And I went back to my room, and I was reactive, <laughs> to, say, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I just thought, yep, I'm going to take a break for a few months. <laughs> this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. My practice is much better than just being on the breath, come on. And uh, so I, you know, got out the inquiring mind that somebody had given me and read that and talked with the other yogis for a while and kind of sloughed through the day. But sure enough, at two o'clock the next day, I had to go report again. So I went back and I didn't have anything new to say and I just was mumbling around and he said, yeah, use the breath more. And This went on for two or three days and I realized, wait a minute. What, what am I doing here? Am I here to please Upandita or to please this guy? Am I here for, well, am I here to develop a relationship with Upandita or something? And I realized I had to reconnect with my original reasons for even going to Burma, you know, to practice, to awaken as much as I could. And when I reconnected with that, it's not even a reason, but that urgency to be there. It was no problem to fully open to what this other teacher had to say. And he said, you know, back to the breath. Okay, I'll do it. And of course, as you all know, if you, if you go back to the basics and keep it really simple, your practice improves. And so, of course, my practice improved. But it was only because it was you know, on the foundation of reawakening to that commitment, to that resolute direction that I had chosen and was in that, at that time being asked to reconfirm. You're all going to get that opportunity on Sunday or Monday. You know, some teachers are leaving, some new ones are coming on. It's your choice. And I ask you to really look at what, what are you here for? What is the direction that you're going? When we reflect on these qualities of the Buddha. This, this one, I only mention one out of the many, 
this quality of resolution, determination, it's not, you know, meant to um, make a, to compare ourselves with, but to understand when reflecting on the Buddha and the Buddha's qualities can be helpful in our practice. When we're wavering, when we're doubtful, when we feel uh, uninspired, when we're taking our life, this retreat, our health for granted, when we're just coasting, when we feel lonely, when we feel painful, when we're dealing with a lot of unpleasantness and we back off from practice. These are the times to really remember the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, skillfully use thinking to support your practice. The second protective uh, reflection practice is metta bhavana, or the development of loving-kindness. And it's interesting how the Buddha first taught metta. There were some monks living who had been sent to one grove, uh, one forest grove, for the range retreat, a three-month retreat. And when they got there, all of the spirits that lived in that forest were um, chattering away and bothering the monks in their meditation practice. And they were, they were too noisy and were disturbing the monks. And the monks got afraid. So they went back to the Buddha and said, we can't practice in that grove, it's too noisy. And it's, uh, you know, there's, there's all these spirits in there, you know, we're, we're afraid <laughs> to be there. And the Buddha said, you go back there and <laughs> practice metta. Develop a heart of open acceptance, appreciation, loving, kindness, welcoming those spirits. And they did. And they went back and they began practicing metta, this loving acceptance of other beings and a well-wishing for their happiness, whatever spirits need to be happy. And of course that, as with any of us, when we are pervaded with loving-kindness and acceptance for the way we are, we become friendly to ourselves and to others. So when we're facing a lot of fear, when we uncover fear in our practice, when we uncover a lot of dukkha, of real difficult uh, stuff to accept in ourselves, our body, our mind, our emotions, when we feel isolated, when we feel alone, when we feel jealous or envious. These are the times to remember metta practice, to remember that we can acknowledge and cultivate this heart of appreciation, just for the way things are. I mean, 
Love is really that ability to appreciate the way things are. The way that being is, just like that. Not asking them to change. Not setting any conditions. I'll love you if. But to accept them as a being and maybe a suffering being, but a being nevertheless that we can open to, that we can appreciate, that we can wish to be happy. Sometimes after weeks of insight practice and this really deep moment-to-moment observation of the impersonal flow of stuff going by, to turn our mind back to metta, to come out of that moment-to-moment impersonal stuff, and to reconnect with beings, oneself, others as beings, is really a Um, it puts us back in the world. It gives us a a feeling of community, of connection, of interdependence, of um, support, really, at that level of our being. When we practice metta and we attune ourselves, really refine our sensitive feeling of another and awaken to that really tender place that can really be with others just as they are even if we don't like them, or everything they do. It it makes a space for a tremendous self-acceptance. A valuable quality in our own practice. It's difficult to open to all that we feel and know within us. And cultivating this appreciation, this respect for ourselves and others is a a valuable ally. But some of you have noticed how metta or the Brahma-viharas are a very active, proactive practice much less of a receptive practice that insight sometimes seems to be, where it's an arousing of energy and a directing of energy in a a way that is much more intentional, seemingly intentional and choice-filled than the open receptive practice of insight. 
And so it takes a different kind of energy. It's, a, it's, the, it's an act of giving rather than receiving. And for that, we need a sense of autonomy, self-sufficiency, a deep respect for our own authenticity. We need to feel empowered to practice metta. And so when we're feeling particularly weak, wavering, alienated, alone, fearful, these are the times to reconnect with metta practice, with really reconnecting to the bond of our community here and at large. Because our communities are glued together with respect and love. Again, when I was practicing in Burma, I went back to Burma the second time in early 1988. In August of 1988, there was a large uprising, a political rising uprising in the country, which was brutally suppressed by the military. And in the course of a few days, there was a lot of military action around the monastery where I lived. And it wasn't firecrackers that I heard going off. It was machine guns and bombs and tanks. And it was a large-scale military mess. And the monastery was really the safest place to be at the time. I couldn't do insight practice. I was had so much anger towards the what was going on outside the monastery walls. I was just seething with rage at the conditions that were being imposed on the Burmese people. And so I started doing, again, metta practice. And it was easy developing metta towards the people who were being suppressed. Because it was obvious that they were really being uh, disrespected in the most brutal way. And after a couple of weeks of developing method for the demonstrators and those who were trying to institute democracy in Burma, my teacher, Upandita, said one day, he really surprised me, he said, <clears throat> Are you sending metta to the generals of the army? And I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) Thank you. And he said, you know, they too want to be happy. But due to their ignorance, they are taking, they are behaving in the way that they think is going to bring them and others happiness. But due to their ignorance, they're actually creating more suffering. And you can see how blinded by ignorance, by delusion, they and we too can be sometimes. So 
I said, all right, I'll try. And it wasn't easy. Talk about a difficult person. Um, but in time, I was able to, to, to really see that they did want to be happy, and I could wish them happiness. I wish they were happy. If they were happy, they wouldn't be doing what they were doing. Um, and that's what really made it possible. I wasn't approving of their action in any way, but I was sincerely wishing them to be happy. Well, they weren't happy, and after a couple of months, they passed this edict that said everybody in the country, all foreigners in the country, had to leave. They were trying to get rid of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was their political thorn in their side. And since her husband was English, if they figured if they could get him to leave, that she'd leave with him. So they passed an edict that all foreigners had to leave, and Michael Harris had to leave, but Aung San Suu Kyi didn't go. So she still remained a thorn in their side. But I too was asked to, to leave um, at the end of my visa, which was already expired. That's the way it is in Burma. But I wanted to stay in practice, so I wrote this letter to General Ufomint, the man who, the general who had been appointed the director of religious, home and religious affairs. And I wrote this long letter explaining who I was, what I was doing in Burma, and that I wanted to stay in practice. And I had the letter translated into Burmese and then written out in Burmese, and I thought I was going to take it downtown to him. And I realized I, when I asked about going downtown, they told me, you can't go downtown, you can't even get out of the monastery. Because it was roadblocks and you know, military barricades and nobody was going anywhere. So I was kind of stymied as to just how I was going to get the letter to him. And the word got around the monastery that I had this letter. And the dietitian in the dining room where I ate my meals heard about it. And she came to see me one night and she said, I hear you have a letter that you'd like delivered to Fomin. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, my niece, my, ne yeah, my niece married his son. I know Ufo Min. I'll take the letter to him personally. So she did. She took the letter, went to talk to Ufo Min, and asked him if he would grant my request to stay in Burma to practice. On the spot, he said, okay. I have to believe it was the result of that meta-practice. <laughs> Reflection on the virtues of the Buddha, developing a loving heart. The third protective reflection it's called a Subha Bhavana. This is maybe the most difficult of the reflections to talk about or to understand as a way of supporting 
a balance in our practice. The Silver practice is developing the perception of the unbeautiful aspect of the body. By now, you've all seen how one of the greatest obstacles to deepening concentration and insight is our obsessive fascination with our body or someone else's. It's no surprise. That's just the way it is if you have a mind. And this disruption occurs because we take pleasure in it. And we take pleasure in the sense of self created by it. Imagining the future pleasurable experiences the body can offer is a great pastime of all of us. But this reflection or this practice offers a way of coming to a fuller understanding of the limitations of the body as a field for enjoyment. It's not meant to be a practice of cultivating hatred for the body, but rather a practice to develop detachment from the body, not disgust, not fear, and not harming the body. We're not trying to deny the body. We're trying to see it more clearly, more fully in its uh, totality. We can get an understanding of a subha practice by understanding the word subha. Subha means beauty, radiance, luster, good, whole, complete. It's this aspect of the body. And in our conditioning, our societal conditioning, that means young, smooth, energetic, healthy, firm, etc. Asuba is not that. Reflecting on the non-radiant, the non-lustrous, the unbeautiful, the unwhole, not unwholesome, but the unwhole aspect of the body, that which causes one to lose interest or to drop obsessive fascination with, which causes dispassionate feelings towards or a coolness towards the body. Traditionally, this is taught as a reflection or a contemplation on what are known as the 32 parts of the body, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, skin, teeth, etc. And doing that, you know, day after day, hour after hour, you know, year after year, however long, however long it takes. Uh, I didn't uh, undertake this practice much in Burma. 
but just once. When I was going to be ordained as a monk, the first act of making the transition from a layman or a lay person to an ordained person, in my case a monk, was to get my head shaved. And I was told before the head shaving that while I was getting my head shaved, I should reflect on hair of the head as one of the impurities or one of the 32 parts of the body. And that was the full instruction of what I was to do. So I went to the place where I was going to get my head shaved and got all lathered up and I was squatting down on the ground. There was a whole circle of Burmese people around me watching. They thought it was a great show, I guess. And they started shaving my head. And I was squatting down and I was looking at the ground right in front of me and after about a minute or two minutes there was this pile of hair there and my head was half shaved and then I remembered, oh, I'm supposed to be reflecting. <laughs> I didn't remember initially. Oh, I'm supposed to be reflecting on the hair of the head. Okay. In that moment, I didn't do, I didn't do anything. It's just like, in that moment, it's as if every hassle I'd ever had with my hair came into view. <laughs> too long, too short, too dry, too greasy, too this, too straight, wrong hairdo, wrong color. I, every bad hair day I ever had, <laughs> there it was in livid color. It was a relief to get rid of that hair. No, I didn't have to hate it. It was just a relief. That's been my, the full extent of my super practice. <laughs> it works. Another kind or another way that a super practice is, is done sometimes is to reflect on the ailments which can affect the body. Not as a way of becoming uh, a hypochondriacal uh, and just getting fearful of what's happening, but just to realize this is the nature of the body. Old age and disease followed by death. It's not, it's not something wrong with us. I mean, uh, personally, because the body gets sick. That's the way of bodies. And if we, if we accommodate, if we open to accommodate that fact, we can drop a pretty considerable amount of uh, obsessive fascination with trying to avoid it, deny it, fix it, cure it.
But reflecting on the unbeautiful aspect of the body, it requires being really sensitive to how we're practicing. If we're developing a hatred, a repulsion, a revulsion, uh, a, a disrespect for the body, we've gone too far. That's not skillful. But if, we're, if we are cultivating a dispassion, if we're cultivating a coolness, a lack of fascination with our own or others, then it's skillful. It withdraws our energy from that which is ultimately going to fall out from underneath us. And it can be used, that energy can then be used for you know, cultivating the, the mind, the heart of awareness. At the time of the Buddha, there was a famous and beautiful, graceful woman named Ambapali, who was appointed the courtesan of the princess of one town. And because of her, this town, Virisali, became famous, very wealthy. She was a courtesan, and at the time of the Buddha, courtesans had a a respectable place in society. And in her wealth, she was a devotee of the Buddha. And more than once she offered, she invited the Buddha to her home with other monks and offered uh, food for the Buddha and offered a garden, a, a park, that she had for the use of the monks. And every time that she would come to listen to the Buddha speak, the Buddha would have to remind the monks to guard their senses because she was extraordinarily beautiful and um, their heads and hearts might get turned away from the Dharma. When she was older, no longer maybe the first choice. And the signs of aging were all over her body. She took up practice. And at one time, at one point, while contemplating the effects of aging on her body, as all of us have no doubt noticed, she became fully enlightened. Just because we see these aging, these age wrinkles and uh, the spreading, uh, the effects of gravity and other signs of aging, our cultural conditioning is to get upset, to try to, 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 to do something to reclaim our youth, our appearance, our energy. Practice would ask us to use that as an opportunity to awaken. A super practice can be helpful when we're caught in an obsessive desire or lust, when we're anxious about aging, 
when we're afraid of disease, when we're attached to our youth. We all have these times, we all have these experiences. We can use them skillfully to support our awakening. Reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha, developing a loving heart through metta, cultivating the perception of the unbeautiful aspect of the body. And the fourth reflection that I want to offer tonight is maranasati, or mindfulness of death. Mabutso was a, a Zen monk in the 1800s. His last haiku at the time of his death was, Moon in a barrel, you never know just when the bottom will fall out. If we could remember that our life is nothing other than the reflection of a moon in a barrel. If we could feel that, how fragile that thread is, that we're here and we have this opportunity to practice. A sense of urgency would burn in our hearts. But we forget. We take our life for granted. A corpse was one of the heavenly messengers to the Bodhisattva. And it took something as dramatic as a corpse to break the hold or the fascination with the things of this world. That princely life that he was leading was so captivating, so entrancing that it took a corpse break that. We don't have the opportunity in this culture much to see corpses. And even when we do, they're fixed up so nice they look better than they did in real life. The denial of death is so pervasive, you have to go out of your way to remember. Right. All beings die, and so will I. The 
the fourth reflection, reflecting on, on the fact of death, is just that. It brings the end of life into view, consciously cultivating this fact. We know it's a fact. We know it's an event yet to happen for us. But it's consciously cultivating it, bringing it close and saying, I too, yes, this is going to happen to me. What does it mean for me today? How would I live my life differently today if this was it? If this was the end today, if, if I didn't wake up in the morning, how would I have wanted to spend today? Would we have done anything differently? And none of us know for sure that we're going to wake up in the morning. But we take it for granted that we will. And in that way we dismiss, we miss an extraordinary support for our practice. Remembering, recognizing, cultivating the knowledge that will die. It's not meant to be morbid. It's not meant to be some uh, depressing, morbid uh, reflection. And if, if that's what comes up, then of course, you're not practicing correctly. I mean, that's, that's a fascination of another sort. But if we bring the fact here, we can draw up a tremendous amount of unnecessary resistance, aversion, desire, silliness, pettiness, And in that way, it supports our practice, our commitment to wake up, to be here, fully here in each moment. So often, our day is spent imagining the futures we'd like to live. But bring that into a little closer reality. Which future that you've imagined for yourself is worth another rebirth, another whole existence to get the opportunity to fulfill? Remember growing up when you were zero, one, two, three years old? Remember those teenage years? Remember the early adult years, the mid-adult years, the late adult years? Remember 
is it worth all that to fulfill that one desire that you can't let go of? If we look at it that way, it's not. We can take that desire and say, no, thank you. That's skillful use reflecting on the fact of our death. To cut through this obsessing mind. When we're slack or lax or lazy, when we've lost a sense of urgency in our practice, Don Juan instructed Carlos to consider death is your eternal companion. It is the hunter, and it is always to your left at an arm's length. It has always been watching, and it always will until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know that your death is stalking you? The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women that live their lives as if death will never tempt them. These four reflections are offered as a protection for our commitment to awaken. We can use them when needed, and when we don't need them, we let them go. But remember the value of reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha, developing a loving heart, understanding the unbeautiful aspect of the body too, and the fact of your own death.
we are besieged often by the forces of darkness. Don't doubt in the dark what you've seen by the light of day. If you have once seen your commitment to awaken, don't doubt it. Support it. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.